thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Locations Unknown. I'm your co-host, Joe Irado, and with me, as always, is a guy who's so not basic, his pH is near zero, Mike Vandebogart. <laughs> it's a pretty technical intro there, Joe. <laughs> only only some people will get it. Uh, not a lot of updates this time around, but I do want to urge people who want to help the show out to visit our Facebook page, where we have a store there that sells... A lot of really cool swag for the trail, some hats, bumper stickers. So uh, help us out and purchase one and know that you're supporting the show. I'm actually looking into uh, getting some patches. Ah, Yeah, that'd that'd be pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, anything backpack if you want to put it on a hat, something. So Excellent. We'll see. I'll buy one of those. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Mike, you can just have one. Okay, thank you. Uh, this week's show is sponsored by Verger CBD Products. Uh, they've been sponsoring us for a while now. Almost most of the most of the time we've been on the air, they've been helping us out. Uh, they have some products coming out for Valentine's Day. They have uh, strawberry chocolate cheesecake truffles. They just came out with some cocoa stirs, where it's a, it's a CBD chocolate bar on a stick, and you like pour hot water or milk in a cup, and you stick it in there and keep stirring it till it dissolves, and it ends up being a CBD hot chocolate. So they have some good stuff. Uh, go check out their website at vergermed.com. That's V-E-R-D-U-R-E-M-E-D.com. And I'd like to also shout out to Lisa Howard Ducey, who actually recommended the topic of what show we're going to be doing today. We're covering the case of Hood and LaRue. So for those of you who know what it's about, it's a, it's a grisly murders on the Appalachian Trail. It's a pretty good story, so it's outside of the normal realm for what we do for Locations Unknown, mm-hmm. but it's an incredible story. We have all the details on it, and it is a nice break from the constant not knowing what's happening to people. So this will be like a, as, although it's one of the most grisly murders on the trail, and I'd argue so far from what I've seen, any outdoors-related incident, we do have an end to the case. There is a close to it, so... That's kind of nice, and because it is a little bit longer, we're going to break this up into two parts, so this will be part one of the Hood and LaRue case. Excellent, and uh, I've read the summary, but I do not know the timeline, so this was a case you put together, Joe, so I'm excited. Yes, and that's where I figured I'd want to break it into two parts because they're... I knew you weren't going to be reading about it, so I want you to ask questions that I know the listeners might ask, yeah. and that's some of the feedback that I have been getting uh, from people I know, plus on the on the website, is a lot of times they'll tell me they're thinking something, and then, Mike, if you did the case, I would ask the question they were thinking, or vice versa, so when you come in clean, it really helps break it up, so please interrupt when we're going through the long timeline, especially because there is a lot of actors in the case mm-hmm. and people that were on the trail that were involved in this. So without further ado, everybody, let's gear up and get out to explore locations unknown. 
September 13, 1990. Biff Bowen and Cindy Bowen were at the halfway point of their 2,144-mile hike down the Appalachian Trail. The couple stopped for supplies in Duncannon, Pennsylvania, before their trek up nearby Cove Mountain. The two planned to spend the night in a three-sided log shelter along the trail. As the couple hiked down an incline behind the shelter, Biff sensed something was wrong. He described the uneasy feeling in such a way that caused him to position his hiking pole as a weapon. As he walked around the cabin's open side, the couple found supplies scattered frantically, and amongst the chaos, two bodies. The Bowens walked onto the scene of a grisly double murder. The victims, two experienced hikers, Molly LaRue, age 25, of Shaker Heights, Ohio, and her boyfriend, Jeffrey Hood, age 26, of Signal Mountain, Tennessee. Hood had been shot multiple times with a 22 caliber revolver. LaRue had been tied up, tortured, raped, and stabbed eight times in the neck and upper back. Join us this week as we investigate the case of Hood and LaRue. Uh, like Joe said, this took place on the Appalachian National Scenic Trail, uh, which is generally known as the Appalachian Trail or simply the AT. It is a marked hiking trail in the eastern United States extending between Springer Mountain in Georgia and Mount... Uh, Joe, you're going to have to help me with this one. <laughs> Kithaden? <laughs> Kithaden in Maine. I apologize Kat-a-hat- for listeners. Kithaden. I don't know. Uh if you if you already know, we're we're pretty bad with names, so uh, feel free to blast us on Facebook. Yeah, a lot of um, people like to comment about how we don't know the names <laughs> of stuff, and just like the last episode or the Ditloff Pass episode, I've yep. gotten to the point where it's like, well, I don't really care what you think because <laughs> we care, but uh, yeah. some of these names are just it's, they're just pretty pretty crazy. Try it's Katahdin. That's what Katahdin. Katahdin. Uh, so. At the Appalachian Trail, Joe, I've always wanted... This is on my list of places to hike. Oh, absolutely. I, there's just so many amazing national parks in the country that I feel like I have to hit those first before the Appalachian Trail. But it's definitely something it, that's on my list along with the Pacific, uh, the PCT. So you, do you want to do sections of it or you want to actually set aside the months and, and do the full through hike? I would love to do the full through hike. I just don't know how I would make that work with normal life, but uh, you never know. It, it's on the, the bucket list, so let's let's do it when we retire. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, the Appalachian Trail, if you don't know, is very long. It's actually 2,200 miles long. The Appalachian Trail Conservancy describes the Appalachian Trail as the longest hiking only trail in the world. More than 2 million people are said to take a hike on the part of the trail at least once each year. So it, it sounds like a pretty busy trail. Well, and it sounds like, and I didn't actually know this, Mike, but it looks like what they're saying is it's the only trail that's only walkable, meaning like if the PCT might have sections that you could ride an ATV on or a vehicle, yeah. this seems like it's the longest one in the world where it's literally only walking. Yeah, so it, it, it sounds pretty cool. I know there's a lot of different scenery and uh, you know, mountains and plains and it's, it's a cool trail. 
so the history of the trail, uh, the idea came about in 1921. The trail itself was completed in 1937. Uh, after more than a decade of work, do we know if this was a conservation corps project? Because that's during the Depression. Like a dead conservation? No, no. Uh, <laughs> you said corpse. The CCC. Um, I know, you meant the, the conservation okay. corps. Corps, sorry. <laughs> it's spelled like corpse. <laughs> We're recording this late. <laughs> um, I know what you meant. I was just being a jerk. Um, okay, thank you. I, I'm not sure. I'm okay. not sure. I was just I, curious. Yeah, I think it. Um, I'll you when you keep describing. I'm going to look it up. Okay, we are doing this more live. <laughs> the Appalachian Trail is maintained by 31 trail clubs, multiple partnerships, and is managed by the National Park Service, the United States Forest Service, and the nonprofit Appalachian Trail Conservancy. Most of the trail is in forest or wildlands, although some of the portions do traverse through towns, roads, and farmland. So if you're planning to through-hike this, a lot of through-hikers attempt to hike the trail in its entirety in one single season. The number of through-hikers per year has increased steadily, with about 715 northbound and 133 southbound through-hikers reported in 2017. If hiking it one way in a single season doesn't sound intense enough, some people do a hike called a yo-yo. Basically, they hike all the way up the trail and then come all the way back down in, it looks like, one season. So that Jeez. that is very intense. Just glutton for punishment. <laughs> right. I don't think I'm going to have the yo-yo on my bucket list. No. Maybe just one-way hike. That, that's completely <laughs> unnecessary. <laughs> the Appalachian Trail, the Continental Divide Trail, and the Pacific Crest Trail form what is known as the Triple Crown of Hiking in the United States. And I definitely say I've never been on the Pacific Crest Trail either, and I've hiked over the Continental Divide, but yeah, I've just done segment. I've just done segments of the Continental Divide. Oh, yeah. we did. We did actually in uh when we were in Montana. Yeah, coming coming down from Fifty Mountain out is uh, a chunk of that. The case we're actually talking about, the murder of Hood and Larue, happened on a seven mile stretch of the AT near Cove Mountain. Uh, Cove Mountain is a wildland in the George Washington and Jefferson National Forest and is located in the Appalachian Mountains of southwestern Virginia, uh, about four miles east of Buchanan, Virginia. The forest's vast and mountainous terrain harbors a great variety of plant life, over 50 species of trees, and over 2,000 species of shrubs and herbs. So it's, uh, you know, very foresty. I imagine it... It's lush. It's lush. I imagine it, it probably the northern sections of the AT will, would remind us a lot of forests in Wisconsin. Yeah, just because it's what can withstand the cold and wind and the bitterness. And then as yep. you go south, you start getting a little bit more of the moisture and warmth. Yeah. So um, as far as wildlife, I think your biggest uh, predators in the area are going to be black bears. I'm assuming those get more common the farther north you go. Other types of uh, animal in the, the AT are white-tailed deer, bobcats, bald eagles, and your other typical forest animals. So all in all, it sounds like an amazing adventure to actually hike the entire thing. I would love to get the Triple Crown, Mike. Yeah, I bet you meet a lot of really interesting people, I'll say. And that's what, yeah, that's what's really cool <laughs> about this is because, um, and we'll obviously get into it along the timeline, but when there's so few people that do a through hike 
and you have little charts along the way and it's it's what the forest service uses to track who's through hiking yeah you'll learn that these people are constantly catching up to one another passing each other falling back um so they develop relationships along the trail and a lot of what information i got was an article that was authored by one of the people on the trail with Jeff and Molly when this happened. So it's, it's going to be a lot of firsthand witness experience. And then what we'll do is we'll link the actual article to it. And you'll see, I pulled a lot of it verbatim out of there just cause it's very factual based. Uh, and I grabbed information from other people's accounts and things like that, but it's a fantastic story. Fantastic, obviously being grim, but it, it's just really I think what I really was intriguing about it was how much information and insight we got into such a grisly murder, whereas you would think in such a remote place, somebody might find these bodies and you just know nothing about what could have happened. But you do have this timeline leading up to the event of these people interacting with the victims and the murder as well. So it's it's a good story. It's grisly. It's terrible. It's unfortunate, but it's really intriguing. And I think you said you, you got quite a few pictures from the case, so... We'll get those posted on Facebook, similar to the Dietlov Pass case. Yes. Yeah, we'll have uh, an album uh, probably a couple hours after the show gets posted. So everyone can go look at, you know, when you're starting to hear us discuss these things and actually see what the lean-to looked like and the different areas looked like and what uh, Molly and Jeff looked like. Jeffrey Hood and Molly LaRue met in Salina, Kansas where the two worked for a church-sponsored outfit that took at-risk children into the backcountry to teach them how to hike, camp, and basically hopefully set them on a more prosperous path. So right out of the gate, it's like a little bit upsetting. Like these are really good people. Like they, they, they spent their free time and their work time working with at-risk kids in the wilderness. Yeah, that's really cool. I know, you know, a lot of uh, kids that grew up in you know, the inner cities, they don't get a, a, a lot of chances to get out into nature. So that's a really cool thing that they were doing. Absolutely. Yeah. And as a kid, I, I mean, you and I, I think I was in Boy Scouts as a kid. I don't know about you. Yeah, I was in conservation clubs. So we got to go up to Boundary Waters and stuff. So. Yeah. And it was something I look forward to every year as a kid going to camp and being out in the woods. So yeah, that's great that they were able to do that for at-risk youth. So Jeff was described as a friendly, contemplative Tennessean, even-tempered and patient. Molly, a year younger, was described as a sunny, energetic artist. In high school, she won a national contest to design a 1984 U.S. postage stamp. The two shared a love for kids and the outdoors. Jeff rock climbed in Colorado and taught climbing at New Mexico's Philmont Scout Ranch. Molly, had tackled two outward bound courses and spent a year providing wilderness therapy to kids in the Arizona desert. So it sounds like they they have a lot of experience in the backcountry, rock climbing and you know, in different terrains. So New Mexico and Colorado are gonna be, you know, kind of two different terrains that you can hike in. Yeah, not to make light of like camp counselors, but these these two were at a whole nother level of ability in backcountry, yeah. not just like, hey, I work the summer camp and I'm a counselor and I can kind of do stuff. These were these were like borderline survivalists type level hikers and backpackers. So they they knew their stuff. So the young couple learned that they'd 
be laid off soon. So they're doing all this stuff. They learned they're going to be laid off and a six month hike seemed like a good way to decide what to do next. So those are the type of people that can, uh, do, do the yo-yo or even just the through hike. Uh, just people that have nothing really stable. So Molly's father, Jim LaRue recounts a phone call he received from his daughter. And this is him quoting, we got a phone call from her one day. She said, you know, I've always wanted to do the Appalachian trail. And I have a friend here who wants to do it too. Do you want to know something about the friend? I said, yes, I would. She said, well, he's a male. I said, are you announcing? <laughs> <laughs> and this is him talking. I said, are you announcing a relationship? And she said, yes, I am. <laughs> very formal. Yes, very <laughs> formal. At this, at this point, Molly and Jeff were basically inseparable. I love you forever. I like you for always. He wrote in an a- in April when he was off in the backcountry. As long as I'm living, my all you will be. Molly drained her savings account to finance the trip, and the couple planned to start in Maine and work their way south. So the, these two basically hit it off right out of the gate and were, you know, lovebirds, essentially. I, I'm sure you're going to get in the timeline, but what time of the year did they start the AT? Um... I'm, I it's believe it's like, ju- I got, I got to scroll down now. I'm like forgetting. I think it's uh, June. Uh, yeah, or June. Uh, yeah, late, like June. Uh, late August, June. Yeah, because I'm okay. going off of their posts, and I, I probably mentioned it. I have a ton of notes here that I'm going to be reading through. So, okay, but, yeah. Sorry to put you on the spot there. No, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it lets people know that it's more real. I did want to take a break and actually say that a lot of. Um, like I said before, a lot of the information was taken from articles, news clippings about the incident. Uh, but the most complete set, as mentioned earlier, was an article posted by Outside Magazine. And this was the September 2nd, 2015 was the issue. Uh, it was written by Earl Swift. Earl was hiking the AT at the same time as the couple and was several days behind them uh, initially. Okay, so he was hiking back in 1990. Yes, he was okay. with them. He actually interacted with them before. Like gotcha. he was a part of this story essentially, and he wrote this this story for Outside Magazine to to cover it. Molly and Jeff kept a journal that also will help reference and catalog their journey through the AT. So it's going to be a mix of Earl Swift's counts, Molly mm-hmm. and Jeff's journal, uh, the journal entries from the different checkpoints along the AT, uh, as yeah. well as quotes from other people they ran into and other news stories from the area. So it's kind of a really, it's less of me just reading a story from outside, but I pulled together a mishmash of different things to really piece together what I, what I felt would be a good way to tell it. So what we can also do is post uh, the show notes on our website and you know, that might be able, you might be able to read sure. through it. Yeah. As we'll, you're we'll, to. we'll link the article too. I don't want to yeah. just take this and claim it for my own. So we'll link Earl Swift's article and that's, that gets a little bit more in depth about the different people as well. I yeah. mentioned them, but anytime he went off on a tangent about something that wasn't really related, I kind of breezed over just to save time. So, so we'll start with there. So in a June 4th, 1990 entry, Molly wrote, we reminded one another before we started this ordeal that there would be tough days. Days we would ask ourselves, why are we doing this? Well, we had one of those days. Jeff's entry added, our bodies have had almost as much as they can take. The day before the couple had climbed the peak of Mount Kethaden, the northernmost part of the AT to begin their journey, 
In addition to their personal journal entries, Molly and Jeff wrote in logbooks along the trail. Before social media and cell phones, these logbooks really served as the means of communication between fellow thru-hikers. So based on their log entries, they were thoroughly enjoying themselves. Earl recounts <laughs> the first entry he read from Molly that he found in the main lean-to and signed with her trail name, Nalgene. Now this is, uh, this. so Molly's trail name was Nalgene. And for those of you that don't know, um, for people who are backcountry hiking, you typically, if you do it long enough, uh, you can't come up with your own trail name. It's like an unwritten rule. It has to be given to you, and it's usually given to you because of something. So if anyone follows me, I usually tag things Wolfhard. That was <laughs> one I got from, uh, was it Officer Peach in Montana? When uh, my knee was my knee was bent up pretty bad, and uh, oh, was, yeah, I was I making remember it. That. Yeah, it was, I was, it was really tough getting through, and he just said, hey, now you're Wolfhard. <laughs> and like talking about how you get hardened like a wolf in the backcountry. I'm like, well, that's the coolest thing ever. I'm taking it. She probably had some incident with Nalgene or loved carrying Nalgene's, whatever. Um, but when we go through, we'll tell you what their trail names are and refer to them as that. But that's something that through hikers do and long-term backcountry hikers end up doing. So this is Molly's uh, first entry in the journal where she signed her name Nalgene. Last evening, I whispered, I think there's less bugs. This morning, bring on the slugs. Through the roof of our tent, I see the familiar sludge, the stuff that resembles butterscotch fudge. Squished between my toes and sandals, yuck, this is something I just can't handle. So she made a little poem about how many slugs there were uh, right in the beginning. So it's not as so easy. they're in good spirits. They're in good spirits, but it's, it's yeah. clear it's, it's not an easy hike, even right out of the gate. Yeah. So Earl was 12 days behind the couple at this point, but he was quickly gaining ground on them. Earl mentioned that they left log entries that they were almost always upbeat. Thanking trail maintenance crews, shout outs to other hikers. Earl mentioned at the New Hampshire line, I'd picked up a week as Molly predicted in one log entry. If you're behind us, you will pass us. So Earl started 12 days behind him, but it was very clear that he was at a much faster pace. So it's very easy. You know, when you're doing something for six months, yeah. being 12 days behind is not like you're completely out of the race there. You're going to be able mm -hmm. to catch up past, fall back more, whatever. Yeah. So Earl actually had a brush, uh, a brush with death while on the trail himself. He had met an army vet along the way named Greg Hammer. His trail name was Animal. <laughs> uh, they, they hit it off and pushed through the trail together. So they kind of hooked up and started going in the same direction. As the two continued to follow Hood and LaRue, they resolved to catch up and meet them. The pace they were going was at no accident. The couple was stopping to take pictures, study plants, wildlife, bake bread. Earl and Animal raced through the presidential range and down a 2,000-foot Webster cliff and set up camp overnight. In the middle of the night, Earl and Animal were startled awake by an enormous thud. A rotted tree had toppled into a four-foot space between them, coming within inches of Earl's head. So that that's it's it's such a terrifying thing that I try not to think about. Yeah, I was I was thinking the same thing. Whenever I'm setting up camp, I always if I don't have to, I do not put my tent under a big tree. No. I'm I'm terrified of like a big branch coming down and smoking me in the night. <laughs> yeah, it's it's totally it's totally not super common, but it happens and what yeah. a thing to what a thing to get you, but basically he had like 
Earl and Animal had their like single tents, like yeah. kind of next to each other, and there's a space between them. And he explained how the tree had fell perfectly down the middle between their tents. And yeah, that's it was, crazy. It, it was a tree that would have smashed him. It would have killed him. So it's pretty. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> that's something I I've always thought about when hiking and backcountry camping is. Uh, never put your tent under a tree. Oh yeah. It's, uh, don't even want to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so on Friday, July 20th at the Jeffers Brook shelter near Glencliff, New Hampshire, Earl and animal finally caught up to and met Molly and Jeff as Earl exchanged handshakes with Clevis. That's uh Jeff and Nalgene. So his name was uh Clevis for some reason, his trail name. <laughs> yeah. He told them that he felt like he'd already met. Earl's first impression of the couple, Molly was a blonde, was blonde and dimpled, quick to smile, solidly built, but obviously fit. Spirited, funny, blue-haired troll doll dangled from her backpack. Jeff was bearded, beetle-browed, and thin, with a smoky, high-pitched Tennessee drawl. Earl noticed that he carried one of the best packs around at the time, a mammoth green Gregory, and that both of them handled their gear with an expert nonchalance. That is a very interesting way to describe people. I think uh, he's a writer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, I've, I'm just saying, like, because the article was very well written, so he, yeah. must, he must be a writer. Because I usually take a journal on the trail, and A, I can't spell, and yeah. B, I just describe things, like, exactly as they are. So like, it's super literal? Boring. Yeah, it, it's super boring. <laughs> You you didn't meet a smoky high high pitched Tennessee drawl. Yeah, I'd have been like, oh, I met these really nice people today from Tennessee. I, yeah, I forgot the, <laughs> I forgot their names. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. no, that's just interesting. I've uh, we've met a lot of uh, interesting characters uh, along the trail, and the only the only one that I can even really remember was the one we called Splinter. Yes. Yep. <laughs> I remember Splinter. And yeah. actually I, I gave this group of guys a trail name and I, and they're from Sweden. So last time we were in Montana, this, this group of three guys, they looked like they're out of like a music video, like, yeah. like stereotypical Swedish. They were head to toe in Fjall Raven, everything <laughs> like, so like they must've had money too. Cause they had like yeah. expensive stuff that wasn't probably even the best stuff for hiking, but it was expensive. And they were wearing like flip flops and it was freezing out. So yeah. I just kept calling them the Fial Ninjas because they're all, <laughs> it was like all black Fial Raven and they're always just popping out of nowhere. Like, and they like freaked me out a couple times. So I kept calling them the Fial Raven, the Fial Ninjas. You remember Splinter. Uh, I, I do. Not to go off track here, but I just real briefly, I want to recall it with you because I just remember how it, looking back now, it was kind of funny. But at the time, like, I mean, we were backcountry in Utah somewhere. Mm-hmm. I can't remember. We were outside. We're near Zion National Park. Yeah, I think we, we're in one we, of the BLM lands or something. Yeah, we had just done. We had done the top down of the Narrows, and then we were we were on a plateau, right? It was after all the no. Storms. We we hiked in. No, this was down. Remember, we hiked into oh, that kind of natural okay. amphitheater. Yes. Yeah. 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 The, like the Red Rock type thing. Okay. Yeah. So it was like that. We yeah. so we we're in a, a group of I think five or six of us, and we hiked down it, to all the listeners listening. So I so you know Splinter. Do you ever meet him on the trail? Um, we hiked down into this kind of natural amphitheater made out of like limestone rock, and all of a sudden this like scraggly looking guy just comes like wandering out of the the bushes yeah. and he like kind of <laughs> wanders into our group. 
we're all kind of standing around him in like a half circle with our hands on our knives. And he starts talking to us about, I think he's, he was talking to us about how he came up with some story and Disney stole it from him or a song. (laughs) It was the craziest thing. And yeah, I do remember him like emerging very rapidly at us from the bushes and it freaked us out. Cause yeah, we got super, we got super defensive and he was like in like, (laughs) like not in a trail that was obscured. He was like in bushes. Yeah. (laughs) Like, (laughs) and i mean he was just it was like the rambling of a madman he was talking about some song that he came up with and disney stole it from him. yeah it was like like walt decades ago yeah like walt disney stole it from him not like the company like he knew walt and walt took it from him and i think he he introduced himself as splinter i think that's why we called him that i don't know crazy story yeah real sidetrack it was uh it was his (laughs) no he said it was because uh he had a hiking stick remember and he was oh yeah carving his hiking stick and he got a splinter and then some guy was like, oh, you're Splinter. And he's yeah. like, that's that's my trail name now. <laughs> so, yeah. So I sorry for the sidetrack, but no, um, I forgot about him at first. So that. no, Yeah. So it, it the interesting people you meet hiking. <laughs> yeah. All right. So, um, yeah, as you can tell, that's why I cut some of the stuff out. Um, Earl's did a fantastic job and was extremely descriptive. So it was almost fantastic, like a blessing. You had a guy like that on the trail. That was taking this much information, but that's where I did cut some out. So it is important to remember that backpack though. So it was unique enough that Earl made a mental note of it because it was very green and it was one of the best Gregory, Gregory packs to this day still are some of the best backpacks that you can have. So basically it was an extremely memorable backpack. Mm -hmm. They spent all night along with several other hikers on the trail. Earl talked about some interesting and annoying characters they met along the way. So Earl spent another day with uh, Molly and Jeff before they decided to hike an old section of the AT while Molly and Jeff and a few others backtracked to finish the rerouted trail. Earl watched as they hitched a ride from a pickup and waving from its bed motored off uh, for the trail crossing. That was the last Earl would ever see them, actually. Okay, so this is around um, July 20th time frame. So later July of 1990. Yes, it was later July, and I do highly recommend that you go and read the Outside Magazine after the story because Earl goes into great depth about the people he met and how they're all kind of ping-ponging along the trail trying to catch each other as they hiked and leaving notes for the logbooks for each other. It's a great read, and it's extremely interesting, in-depth insight into basically what what the goings-on are yeah. of the trail when you're doing something like this. Like the things, if you imagine you got to hike something for six months, this is uh, what keeps you sane, I guess. Yeah. Is like you, this is what you focus on because you're not focusing on anything else. And like you said, it was the '90s. We didn't have the internet yet. Like it, we didn't have cell phones. Like there was this was the only communication you had was the people on the trail and these logbooks. Yeah, it's interesting because you know whenever <clears throat> whenever I'm backcountry hiking, sometimes you get so exhausted. The last thing I'm thinking about is kind of the details around me. I can remember, you know, 50,000 foot things about the hike. But if you ask me, you know, certain details from a hike, you know, after we just hiked all day with 50 pound packs on, I don't know how well I'm going to be able to recall some of that stuff. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's why I don't know if you remember, but I carry that like waterproof pen and book. Yeah. And And that's why at night, like I'll just quickly jot things down, like where we've been, what we did, how hard it was just so I can yep. like recall it. And I actually, when we went back to Montana, I like opened that book up and had a lot of information about 50 mountain and 
what to expect and it was it was nice it wasn't as well written as earl but uh <laughs> it did the job yeah. So <clears throat> unfortunately we didn't have exact dates and days for some of the things he mentioned but we're fast forwarding now to september 5th uh so like a few we're a few several months after the start of the trip essentially so we're september yeah. 5th 1990 a 38 year old farmhand from south carolina buys a one-way ticket north at the nearby greyhound depot he was a short stocky man considered smart and hardworking by his bosses. He was described as rootless, quite to the point of secrecy, and prone to lengthy, unexplained absences. The shack he left behind was piled with garbage and empty beer cans. So that's describing you know, a little foreshadowing, if I'm going to yeah. ruin some things. So okay. a, a day later on, so this is September 6th, uh, this man stepped off a bus in Winchester, Virginia, and hitched rides west to Romney, West Virginia north into Maryland, northeast to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, until six days after leaving the farm, he walked into a library in East Berlin, Pennsylvania. Halfway between Gettysburg and York, looking for hiking maps, a librarian suggested that he try the York branch, wrote the directions, and asked that he sign the guest book. He wrote his name down as Casey Horn. Now, this guy's name was really Paul David Cruz. Okay. And he was a he was a suspect in a murder. 4 years 4 years earlier on July 3rd, 1986, a woman had offered him a ride home from a bar in Bartow, Florida. She was she was later found naked and nearly decapitated on an abandoned railroad bed. According to law enforcement records, shortly after this incident, Cruz had turned up at his older brother's place in Polkville, North Carolina driving the woman's bloodied Oldsmobile. Nothing suspicious there. I know. Uh, With the law closing in, his brother gave him a lift into the country, and he took off running. The police recovered the car, along with Cruz's knife and bloody clothes, but found no sign of him. Since then, he laid low, avoiding attention and revealing little of his past, which had been troubled from the start. Abandoned in childhood, he was adopted at age 8 by a couple in Burlington, North Carolina, but he ran away frequently, he joined the Marines in 1972, married in January 1973, became a father the following month, attempted suicide, and went AWOL. And he got discharged from the Corps. So he was divorced in 74, so about a year. So I'm getting a, a sense that um, this guy obviously is suffering from some some mental uh, illness. Yeah, some like stemming from abuse as a child or something. He's got yeah. some, something is wrong with him. Very much so, and he is getting away with it, essentially not being in jail when he should be. Yeah. So he went back to Florida after he divorced his second wife, where he picked oranges each spring until the homic- until the homicide in Bartow, a crime he was formally charged with on July 7th, 1986. So the police thought Cruz might have killed before. So it's interesting. This is, you know... Cruz is still committing a murder in a time where you could probably disappear. Yeah, it's and not get before caught before the internet. Before the internet, before you know the mass surveillance that we have now, you know everywhere. Before phones tracked us. Yeah. Um, so I don't I don't know why I mentioned that. It just it's an interesting for most people alive now that are you know younger than twenty or yeah, 2021, 20, you know, they were born and grew up with the internet. 
I still remember, I still remember a time without the internet. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like when you wanted to go phones. to, you wanted to go to a movie with friends and you had to plan it ahead of time and then show up and hope they show up too. <laughs> like, so yeah, that's interesting that, you know, he committed this murder and now he's kind of on the run. So they know who to look for. They just can't find him. Absolutely. And that's what I, you're saying. I think it was worth you mentioning that because it really does bring home what it was like before the information age. Yeah. And even for like, like you said, we were adolescents, you know, teenagers, like when this was all happening. So it wasn't like we were little kids and it's hard to remember the time before you were that connected to yep. where this guy is, if he was able to outrun the police. Yeah. That's it. Unless like there's a news story that somebody in another town just happens to see and then happens to notice them. And then they call the police department who then calls the other police department. And then they like kind of weakly put it together. This yeah. guy's running all over the place and they can't catch him. Mm-hmm. And that would not be the case nowadays. Yeah, I think it would be very hard to commit a murder in this day and age. And I, I mean, you could go on the run, but I think you're going to get caught oh, a lot yeah. quicker. <laughs> well, yeah, pinging the cell phones, credit card transactions, things like that. Whereas exactly. back then you didn't have to, you didn't have to survive on that type of stuff. Yeah. So late in the afternoon. Now, that, that kind of just gave a little background about who we're dealing with. A nut job who's at least murdered murdered at least two people that they know about. Yeah. Um, threatened the life of his second wife with a bayonet. So he's he's off his rocker for sure. So late in the afternoon on September eleventh, nineteen ninety, Cruz found his way to the Appalachian Trail. At the time, the AT followed sixteen miles of paved road through Pennsylvania's Cumberland Valley. It is described by Earl as a shadeless hike and very hard on the feet. The trail's caretaker had worked for years to reroute this footpath into the forest that they had acquired piecemeal. On this afternoon, the ATC's Karen Lutz, and this is uh, the caretaker for this segment, okay, was surveying such a property when she noticed a bearded man plodding up the road behind her. So basically... What they're saying is Earl described this as like an open desert-like hike that was crap on the feet. And uh, the caretakers for this section of the trail, they're piecemeal acquiring land in the woods to reroute it to go through a more comfortable hiking area. Okay. So this lady, Karen Lutz, was out surveying one of the properties when she noticed crews coming up behind her. She was close to the Pennsylvania Turnpike and figured he was just a hitchhiker between rides, just a drifter. So she didn't really think anything out of it. Yeah. Based on his clothes and what he carried, she did not take him for a hiker. So Cruz was wearing a flannel shirt, jeans, combat boots, had a small rucksack on his back, and carried two bright red gym bags, each uh, with a Marlboro logo on them. So the cigarettes. Yeah. The the camel guy. Yes. So uh, he kept his head down as he trudged past, headed north towards US-11. Two hours later, Karen Lutz drove north in the trail. She drove pretty far north of US-11, so she passed the road where he assumed she, he was hitchhiking on, where she happened to encounter Cruz again. She realized at that moment that he was, in fact, hiking. He wasn't far from the spot where the AT veered from the road uh, and onto into the trees, essentially. At the time, she noted that if he hustled, he would have made the Darlington Shelter, which was a little more than three miles away. So this is something she just kind of recalled to herself. She wasn't talking to him, but she just knows the area. She said, hey, if he's moving quick, he'll be able to get to this shelter. Yeah. 
Lutz drove on, unnerved. She stated that something about the man, his filthiness, his clothes, his joyless progress, filled her with dread. Wow. <clears throat> so, and you know what? This kind of goes into some of the more, not supernatural stuff, but there's a lot to be said about like people's auras. And I don't yeah. want to get too hippie on you, but there really is like around truly evil people. You always hear counts of other people in like interacting with them and feeling like they always say like, it felt like the joy was taken out of the room. It felt mm-hmm. like, like they can actually like their, the negative energy from people who are this evil literally affects people that in they encounter. So yeah, that's a, that's an interesting idea. I don't, I can't say personally that I've ever, I've ever met someone like that where I've, I've sensed that feeling of dread, but it's definitely something I've, I've read and researched about before in different cases and uh, different stories I've read about, you know, people that experience strange things in the wilderness. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. There's probably no legitimate study of it, but it's, it's kind of one of those things that everyone knows what you're talking about. Yeah. Anecdotally enough people have said it that I have to believe it, but yeah, there's no, I'm actually, there probably is research done on it, but still it's, she felt something was off with this guy. Yeah. So what she didn't know was that Cruz was carrying a long-barreled 22 caliber revolver, a box of 50 rounds, a double-edged knife nearly nine inches long, and he was one of most of Florida's most wanted fugitives. So she just passed this guy who's murdered two people before, carrying a gun, bullets, a giant knife. It's probably good that she didn't stop and talk to him. Yeah, Le- legitimately, because she was out in, in this long stretch of wilderness, like, it could have been her last. He's already day. killed. I mean, why wouldn't he do it again if exactly. he feels threatened by somebody? Well, he not even threatened. I think he's just a nut job. So yeah. it doesn't matter. I think you just rub him the wrong way and he'll just do that. Yep. So going into nightfall on September 11th, Carrots Lutz sees Cruz heading towards the Darlington shelter. We are now going to rewind to earlier on the 11th and go back to Molly and Jeff. So this is uh, what I'm trying to do is piece together is. It's if, if we had a video of this, it's kind of like where you see one person's timeline and then they go back to the beginning and show another person's timeline. And we're slowly yeah. building the story together to where all of these people start to intersect. So we're going to rewind earlier okay. on the 11th and go back to Molly and Jeff. Uh, they had broken camp at a tiny uh, squalid Peters Mountain shelter. So that's what they described as a squalid shelter uh, north of Susquehanna River. At this point, they're almost halfway through their hike. So they've almost gotten to the halfway point. So they're about Mm -hmm. three months in and really hitting their strides. They're really starting to hit kind of their pace. They're really starting to feel it. Um, They've even paused to do some counseling. So they they wrote in a quote, we reached the Allentown shelter for breakfast. Uh, And this is something Jeff wrote on September 6th. There we met Paul, whom we talked with quite a while. He was a 15-year-old who was kicked out of his house. And we talked about some different ideas for him to try. The couple hiked into Duncannon where they met some more hikers, had pizza, and walked a couple of blocks away to the Doyle Hotel. In Earl's article, he described it as a crumbling fossil of a once grand inn with great food but spider-infested rooms. Mm. So <laughs> I'm almost thinking like a hostel for America. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a pretty bad hotel. One star. So yeah, it's, it's, um, and just going back to like just how good of 
people, the, how, how good these people were, you know, they, they met some kid who's obviously having a rough time and they took time out of the day to work with them and counsel them yeah. and hopefully, hopefully give them some ideas and just maybe he might've taken some of those. So these two are just great people. This is probably the first place that they've had a bed for a while. So, yep. and Earl even says when hiking for months, a bed's a bed. So yeah, exactly. So it's, it doesn't matter. <clears throat> So the couple unpacked their gear and called their parents, discussing their plans to reu- uh, reunite in Harpens Ferry to celebrate making it halfway. So they're actually working with their families to all meet up in, at their halfway point and celebrate yeah. before they continue on the second half. So on the phone call, Jeff told his mom, better bring soap and brushes so, <laughs> so that we can scrub the smell out of our packs. Glenda Hood um, promised to bring two pumpkin pies, which was his favorite. One more thing Jeff said, we have something to tell you when we all get together. There's always been a lot of speculation about what that was going to be, his younger sister, Marla Hood, said. She thinks they plan to announce their engagement. Unfortunately, they never do. So that night, and again, this is September 11th uh, in 1990, the couple signed the Doyle's Register, countering a previous hiker's claim that he was the last of the 1990 Southbounders. So there was another hiker that came through that assumed he was the last person coming southbound that was through hiking the AT. Yeah. They wrote, Hey, Greenhorn, you most certainly are not the last entry of the season, Jeff wrote. As you can't read this, well, we'll tell you when we catch you. As we hear it, we're about mid-slip of the southbounders moving down. Oops, getting food on my book. Good food, too. Time to go. Clevis and Nalgene. Slice. <laughs> So they're in great spirits thinking they're going to catch this guy because they believe they're the last ones to go. Yeah. So now we're on Wednesday, September 12th, so the next day. In the morning, the couple met Molly's elderly great aunt and two other relatives in the town square, then accompanied them to lunch at a nearby truck stop. Afterward, they picked up mail, stopped at a small grocery store, and at 3.45 p.m., followed the trail into the woods and up Cove Mountain. They climbed over stone, loose scree, to arrive at Hawk Rock. From there, they faced an easy two miles of ridgetop to Thelma Marks at the bottom of a steep 500-foot side trail. Jeff and Molly likely arrived there sometime after 5 p.m. The graffiti-carved plank floor slept four or five comfortably, eight people in a pinch. They would have had plenty of room to unroll their sleeping gear and spread out a bit. Sunset came at 7.22 p.m., but the shelter was hunched against the mountain's eastern flank and in the shade of the ridgetop. Molly and Jeff likely died between 5 a.m. and 7 a.m. that next morning. Thank you for listening. This is the end of part one of Hood and LaRue. We're going to be coming back in the next few days with part two to follow up uh, to this grisly story in the AT and more to the story on what happened to Molly and Jeff. Go like us on Facebook. Check out our Twitter, Instagram feeds. We have a LinkedIn page still. I always mention that because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> And and if you want to go ahead and find out what happened, go right ahead. Otherwise, if you can wait a few days, we will tell the rest of the story and then feel free to go after that. As always, if you're hiking, camping, or in the woods, be sure to leave no trace.